Hi there, this is Ian and I'm very pleased to bring you this special episode of the Ski Podcast. It's an interview with ski industry veteran Peter Hardy. Peter Hardy has been skiing for longer than most of us have been alive and he knows everything about everything as far as the world of skiing is concerned. I talked to him about all sorts of things including his uh, first experiences on snow in Lech in the uh, 1960s. Uh, but as varied as uh, what it was like uh, being accused of spying in Uganda and being a, a friend of Idi Amin in the uh, 70s. Also trying old ski kit with uh, Graham Bell, watching him skiing on skis from the 19th century. And going on tour with James Blunt. Peter is definitely a man who's uh, lived a very, very interesting life and I'm sure you will enjoy this podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by uh, Peter Hardy, a ski industry uh, veteran. He's an award-winning uh, writer and uh, acknowledged internationally as Britain's leading expert on the uh, the ski industry worldwide. He currently represents uh, Val d'Isere in the UK. He's co-editor of We Love to Ski, and he is the co-presenter of the Action Packed podcast. Now, we'll come back to podcasting. Um, But what I'd like to do today is to find out a little bit more about one of the longest and most illustrious careers in ski journalism in the UK. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm fine. Nice to to be on the show. Well, it's nice nice to see you in person because we're recording this on on video, which is we've had so few kind of ski events. And we were discussing a little bit earlier about the frustrations of skiing this season. But I'd I'd rather look on the positive today and find out a little bit more about your career because you know the what I mentioned earlier you've been working in the industry for a long time but I think you've been skiing for a long time can I ask you when you actually started skiing I almost don't answer that it's it's such a long time ago long before anyone anyone right here was born I I actually started um when I was uh, 12 years old which uh, takes me to uh, uh to 1960 the, the early winter of 1960. We went on a family holiday to Lech am Arberg in Austria, and I put on skis for the first time. I have to say they were really big skis. I, mean, I can remember it very well indeed going into the, the shop, which is called Pfefferkorn, on the main street by the church in, uh, in Lech. And um, I, uh, the first thing you do is put your hand above your head, right above your head, to measure the length <laughs> of the skis. So I was sort of, sort of gangly, um, 12-year-old, I suppose, um, not particularly athletic, but, but uh, uh, like the idea of having a go at skiing. So you end up with this thing that is sort of uh, uh, two metres two meters long, you know, two metres <laughs> five, maybe two metres ten. I think two metres five would be good. And, and that is a, an enormous sort of piece of plank of wood to try and put on your feet and make it go around corners. Well, it didn't, is the answer. Right, and and that was in Lech. So in Lech in 1960, I mean, was there much of a, a lift system there at that time? Yeah, there was quite a good lift system actually. Lech, Lech was one of the one of the resorts after World War II that was a beneficiary of the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe, uh, and lots of money was was pumped in. And the village fathers wisely thought to themselves, "Well, we've got to do something to make a living. Why don't we have a go at skiing?" So they put in really quite a good infrastructure of lifts. There was a uh, a cable car and uh, uh, quite a lot of chairlifts, and the, the, the layout of the mountain was really very similar to what it is today. I mean, in that enormous period of time, Lech has changed a lot. And I go back there quite regularly. It's changed a lot, but and at the same time, it hasn't changed because it's still Lech, and then over Lech, the, the, the car-free village above it, 
uh, or these days that's all linked by underground tunnels and things between the hotels. But in, in those days, obviously there was nothing like that. But it was, but it was quite quiet. I mean, there weren't that many people there. You know, the, 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 any any other Brits in the resort, you knew them. You know, you met them and you talked to them. I mean, there was that many, that many. That's 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 great. Uh, actually, I started skiing very near to there myself. I started in St Anton, not so much lo- longer uh, after that. And uh, my parents, uh, you know, were one of the few Britons who used to go out to St Anton in the sixties. Uh, and uh, they told me about where they used to stay. And I tracked it down a few years ago and managed to meet. And that their family is called Falch. It's probably a, a name that you know in St. Anton. It's seen all over St. Mm-hmm. Anton. Yeah. And when they went there, House Falch, where they stayed, their instructor was a guy called Richard Falch. But he was an instructor, but he was also a, a farmer at the same time. And he had a herd of cows. And during w- the winter, the cows were in the ground floor underneath the actual house, the pension where they lived. And that was effectively their central heating, the heat of all the cows coming up through the uh, through the building. And that, you know, that's how St Anton, for example, had changed. You know, it used to be a very small farming community. And I'm guessing Lech had that kind of feel to it around that era as well. Well, very much so. I, I remember going to St Anton, not, not perhaps that year, but certainly um, in the following years, because we used to go every year to Lech. And uh, yeah, it was the same sort of atmosphere. Uh, obviously, St. Anton's a bit bigger, but uh, it was the same sort of thing. And of course, the two areas then were very separate ski areas. You couldn't ski between the two. For sure. And, and I think um, another thing, when we went, uh, when I learned to ski, we went out by a car. But when my parents first went out to uh, St. Anton and to Obergurgel, which is, which is where they met, they went out by train. And I, I've questioned my, my mum about this. She has no idea. I think it was probably Erna Lowe, but there was probably only Erna Lowe or, or Inghams, perhaps, who were offering trips to St. Anton around that time. Do you recall how you travelled out there at all? Yeah, the first couple of years we travelled out by by car. My my dad was a very keen keen driver, and we used to go and stop on the way and make it make that part of the holiday as well. And then we did indeed go on the Ernalo charter train to Austria, and it was a I can remember it distinctly. I, I suppose by then we're talking about 1963, something like that, and I can remember distinctly going on this train. As with everything, of sort of Erna did like that. It was also slightly thrown together at times. You know, she did her best. But <laughs> you can imagine Erna, who was then a very, you know, just Erna, a very small company, uh, actually trying to do the fine details of a charter train that went the whole way across Europe to the stations at Langen, Langen, which is near the Alberg Pass. And from there, you, you, I don't know how we travelled on to there. I can't remember that bit. I'm a guest a car of some type, a taxi of some type. I do remember there also there were horse-drawn sleighs as well, but. I think that was expensive, and we certainly didn't travel all the way up there in a sleigh across the flex and pass. But the train itself was a remarkable journey. And the most important thing, as far as I remember, was that it, it was a hodgepodge of carriages put together, quite run-down carriages, they seemed to me. And there was a, a disco car. That was the real exciting thing. And the, the disco car, I can visualise it now. It had, uh, well, of course, because there were no sort of um, gimbals to keep the thing straight, like the old trains, like you see a sort of movie of the Orient Express or something, you were bashed around as you moved down the corridor of the train. <laughs> it was exactly the same thing inside the disco carriage. So anyone trying to dance and sort of falling into everybody else, not helped by gallons of 
Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, double diamond would have been the beer, which people were consuming and spilling all over the floor. <laughs> and the music was provided by a um, a record player, a, a gramophone almost, a record player <laughs> that, that was on. Well, that actually was on gimbals, and you could buy these things to go into cars. And my 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 much older brother had a uh, had had one in his car. I remember you know, as one of these record players. Where you. It was sort of mounted on springs, so it kind of absorbed some of the shock of driving. And you you whacked a forty five, um, a forty five record, and, and anyone knows what that is, forty five <laughs> in, in, in the sort of slot, and away it went. But of course, the ne needle would sort of bounce around, and every time you hit a point on the, in the on the charter train, it jumped enormously. So you sort of lost the rhythm. It all seemed quite fun. Yeah, well, it, de it definitely sounds like a quite fun. I might just uh, chip in at this point uh, that uh, as well as, you know, this special that listener, if you're listening to this now, might be worth uh, you uh, digging out our ski special uh, podcast special we did about Erna Lowe, where actually I interviewed Mark Frary, who I'm sure you know very well, uh, Peter, about the book he wrote, Aiming High, about Erna Lowe. And that will give you a lot more insight into this pioneer of the ski industry. It's very, very uh, interesting. Uh, just to track back, Peter, to to those early days of skiing then. I mean, these days, people are used to wearing Gore-Tex and padded uh, jackets and all sorts of stuff. You mentioned the skis and the equipment that you use. What kind of clothing or gloves, uh, et cetera, did you, did you, were you equipped with at that time? Well, we used to rent them. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing to do looking at now. But we used to go to uh, Lily White's when it was a big uh, department store. A smart department store in in, uh, in in central London, and we rented these for very low figures. You rented a jacket and a pair of ski trousers. The ski trousers were sort of kind of stretch trousers, stretch tight trousers, um, uh, which uh, either yeah they seemed to fit quite well. And then uh, the jacket, which was extremely lightweight. Uh, uh, I remember the second year I had one by by Luter, you know, a big brand, but that was yeah. in their infancy. Uh, and uh, and that was really smart, I felt. But it, then he just wore a very thick uh, sweater or something underneath, and that was it. There was always a complete separation between your top of your body and the bottom of your body, which is great for skiing, but this was a bit more than that. It was the clothing separation. So you probably <laughs> had a, a cold midriff. <laughs> that doesn't sound too good. Gloves? Would they be, you know, leather gloves? Something? Uh, no. Yeah, there were some leather gloves, woolen gloves, mainly woolen gloves. Yeah, that wouldn't be so good on a cold day, really, would it? Oh, absolutely. You know, when you were, as you were always falling over, you were in my case, then you were sort of soaked permanently from early in the morning until the afternoon. But you just sort of put up with it. And then the boots were initially the first year. The boots were uh, lace-up boots leather lace-up boots that didn't really cover the ankle because you could actually break your ankle skiing in those days it's that, that was the main injury yeah now, now the, the the pain and the the the, the 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 point of danger rises up the leg to the knee but in those days it was very much the, the ankle that was at risk so so those were your early days of uh, skiing and I, and I think i'm right in saying that uh, you know as you moved into your career you I started working as a journalist, as a foreign correspondent. Is that right? Yeah, I was very much a, a, a general reporter to start with, and then later on a foreign correspondent. Uh, but I, I trained in, in the provinces, and then I got a job on the Evening Standard. And uh, uh, life went on from there, really. But I didn't do much skiing then because I was too busy, too busy traveling all over the place. 
I guess you were. I, I tell me if this is correct. I read this somewhere. It, 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 I, I read that um, in Idi Amin's Uganda, you escaped execution after receiving a death sentence for alleged spying. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a long, long story told too many times over the years. But yes, I was I was uh, arrested for so-called spying. Obviously, I wasn't, uh, and uh, was sentenced to death. And managed to obviously talk my way out of it because here I am today. It's a long, long tale, but I got to know Idi Amin very well. I went to sort of stay with him and I was there for some weeks uh, staying in the, in the state house in Tevye, the palace with him. And uh, it was, it's, a, it's a long saga, but I, I was very lucky to get away with it, yes. Gosh, well, that, that's one for uh, possibly a different podcast, but it sounds fascinating. But I think that, um, you know, you were a forest, foreign correspondent and then you, you came back to skiing again. Um, do you want to explain how, how that came about? Yeah, I used to, uh, when I was about, probably about 30, just about coming up to 30, I somebody working by then on the Evening Standard, no, by then on the, on the Daily Express, and uh, I got um, the opportunity to go on a, a, a press trip with some other journalists and off we went. And I thought, hey, this is pretty good fun. What have I been missing? By then, of course, skis and equipment were getting much easier to learn on. So you didn't spend your entire time lying on your bum. And uh, I just got, I just slowly, quite slowly fell in love with the whole idea of it. And then realized in the end, that's what I want to do the rest of my life. And I took a, a conscious decision then in 1984 to give up what I was doing and just go skiing. That that sounds like a, a decision. It was probably one of the big, the biggest and most important ones in your life. And I, I think that was also influenced by the fact that you'd met Felice, uh, your wife, at yeah, some point around then. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'd met Felice, who was then the deputy editor of what is uh, was in those days Ski Survey, the Ski Club magazine, which became Ski and Board. And we we sort of met, and we we met in Austria actually in in uh, Obertown, and uh, uh, we decided that we'd uh, we sort of we'd have a life together. What uh, how would we uh, earn a living? And I was you know, still traveling around, and wanted to to stop. And she said, "Well, you know, what what can you do? You know, skiing? You know, you love skiing. We we can make a living out of skiing." And I said, "Don't be ridiculous. Nobody makes a living out of writing about skiing." Hmm. But here we are, still doing it all these years later. Well, that's very very impressive. I think it's probably harder to make a, a living out of um, writing now with publications, etc. Fewer publications being around. But during the course of your career, I think you've written for most, if not all, of the the key ski publications. Is that right? I think that's right. I, don't, I think I've written for every every national newspaper just about. When you decided to become a ski journalist on a on a full time basis. Uh, I think it coincided with a boom in skiing through the 80s with uh, big chalet operators like uh, um, Bladen Lines and Super Travel and Mark Warner all just starting up. And at that time, I think you were writing a, like a weekly column in the in the Telegraph. Is that right? Yeah, I wrote a weekly column in the Telegraph for a, for a very long time, actually. I, I started there in 1990, 1991, one or the other. And uh, I, I did it really until... Uh, Gradually less over the years, but right up until about 10 years ago, I was doing it on a weekly basis. And did you always find enough things to be able to write about? Or did you just give you an excuse to visit many me resorts? 
Well, it was always an excuse to go to another resort. No, I never had a problem. I've never had a problem finding things to write about. And I just decided each week where I would go and what I would do. It was looking back right now, it was a fabulous opportunity. And I would just sort of go and uh, produce the column. And as long as it was on time and appeared, everyone was very happy about it. Excellent. And how many resorts do you think that you've been to over your career then? Well, I'm not like Arnie Wilson, who's sort of collected <laughs> more than anyone else alive, I think. He's up in the 700 summer, but I passed the 500 mark. I don't, I don't really sort of count. It, it, we, he and I have arguments about what is a resort. Is it, does it have to have its own lift map to be a resort? Or can it be some tiny village off the edge of it that calls itself a ski resort that's linked into the main area? So it's a pretty grey area, but I've been to a lot of resorts, yeah. Right, over 500 is, is pretty good for sure. I mean, that's an interesting kind of philosophical question you bring up there. What is a ski resort? If there's snow there and you ski on it, does that make it a ski resort? Does it have well, to have a I, lift? When Arnie read his book about going around the world, you know, he, he, he skied every day for a year. And sometimes they just had to ski on a little patch of snow somewhere on the side of a motorway. It's very hard to define what is an actual ski resort. So as well as writing for the Telegraph and visiting all of these uh, different resorts, you've built up you know, a vast uh, amount of knowledge of the different resorts. And that led to, uh, you've written a few books, I think, uh, including the, the Good Skiing and Snowboard Guide, which was then subsequently you know, renamed the Hardy uh, Skiing and Snowboard Guide. Yeah, we did that for many years. Uh, first, we took it over because it, it, it had already was up and running. Uh, when we took it over in uh, 1984, I think, 85. And we, we it, it was a question, it wasn't a question of just re-editing it every year, it was a question of rewriting it every year. So it was, it was an enormous task because it took us from January until May, which is when it came out. We never really saw daylight, really, during the, we did the, we, did, we kept going skiing to the end of the season, but then it was just about six weeks of, or two months of, just working 20 hours a day to try and get this book out of the way. But it was really good. It was really good experience. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. And then it, sure. changed, it changed publishers, which gave it up. And then we went to um, another publisher uh, and it became uh, Hardy Skiing and Snowboarding Guide in the end. Then, then we decided one day, what are we going to do with this? I felt that the end of ski guidebooks had arrived. It was, the world was changing. And we then just met up with Sean Newsom, the editor of the Sunday Times. And he just started, well, was in the process of starting this website, we love to ski.com. Uh, and we got talking and we thought, well, why not? And he thought, why not? Let's put, use the guide as a basis for the content of the website. And that's how we love to ski started, really. Yeah, that makes it. I mean, what you're describing there is for for younger listeners, the idea that pre, there was a time pre-internet when the only way you could get your information about ski resorts was to buy yourself a book. I remember, you know, when we had a, a holiday coming up, we do a bit of research and find out about it, you know, from, you know, one of these books which had all the information, what the best uh, runs were and how many lifts there were, et cetera, and how many pieces. Whereas now it's almost hard to imagine that you can just go to a site like We Love to Ski and find that information straight away. Everybody assumes that but you forget at the time to research it all as you're talking uh, about was um, a process that took months and obviously it would change every year uh, and you couldn't just update a page on the internet you talk about a whole new publication absolutely it was extraordinary looking back because i would go to resorts sometimes and then a mountain restaurant you see someone pouring over a copy of our book deciding where they were mm -hmm. going to go next 
Well, you know, it's not exactly like looking at the screen, is it? No, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah, the book was quite heavy to carry around. Too. Documentary about skiing with Graham Bell, where you yeah. were using some of that equipment that you've used when you were, you know, uh, a child yourself. Was that quite weird going back to that again? Well, I went to a lot earlier skis than that because I've got a little collection of skis and I borrowed a few others of other people. So the idea was to take uh, skis from 1890, which was even before my time, <laughs> in 1890, and right up until the 60s uh, and 10-year periods and see how skiing had progressed and changed over that period. So when we got to Chavinia, which is where we did it in summer, uh, we, we had all the right clothing, Graham and I, you know, we were dressed up in Sherlock Holmes type clothing. And uh, uh, the producer of the, of the movie said to me, look, Peter, what we really want is for Graham to fall over. Ourselves <laughs> we really want him to fall over in the middle of all this. So your job now is to find him the oldest, and most difficult skis you can find and, and some really uncomfortable boots. So uh, I, I, I rose the occasion and... Uh, I gave him a pair of, uh, which I own, a pair of 1890 skis. They are, they are enormous planks. I've never actually measured how long, but they're certainly sort of, a, they're certainly pushing towards 220, I should think. And, and they're wide, and there's no side cut. What's a side cut, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the binding is uh, um, a piece of metal that's been made in the local blacksmith shop uh, uh, as a sort of toe piece. And, uh, and this comes around to a, a, a strap at the back, a telemark strap, if you like, but it was pretty early telemark, uh, which was, in, in this case, that, the leather on that was pretty hard and old, as you can imagine. They've been sitting in a house with central heating for the last 50 years or something. So I softened up the leather a bit anyway and uh, gave him these. He, he looked a bit taken aback, Graham, when he looked at these. <laughs> and the boots were a pair of boots that, you would have worn on a farm in 1890, 1900, maybe they're a little bit later, but they were just hobnail boots. And they've been converted by someone so that the toe piece was sort of cut straight along the top and it would fit into this piece of metal, just about. And there was a, a groove, a handmade groove in the back which held the strap in place, just about. So Graham looked at these, sort of, you know, just slightly sort of strange. I chose myself a pair of 1960 skis, about the ones, <laughs> skis, about the ones where I came in on, just about, uh, and been a pair of really horrible boots. They were the first, uh, first clip boots. That, when you went, to, when you went up a tea bar, the clips used to join onto your neighbour's boot, which made it. Yes, I remember that. And uh, so, I, anyway, I got these on my feet, and up the glass here we went. Um, we got to the top, and we got out, and I put mine on, and Graham put his on. And he just he just skied off, you know. He just skied off like he'd been doing it all his life. He, just, he can tell him up, which I can't, which I have to say is a huge advantage. But um, it, it was remarkable. It, it just looked graceful and beautiful. And the turns were inevitably very slow because that thing took a long time to get around the corner. But he was great with it, and he really just enjoyed it. And I, so I thought, well, they're going with it too. So I I went on. And I put my skis on. And I, you know, when you're skiing, you do something you. Uh, somewhere up in your head, uh, your brain says, it's time for a turn, Peter. So that signal then slowly goes down your head, down <laughs> your ankles, and you turn. Well, in this case, you, the signal went from my brain. It got to about my knee, and then no further. Nothing happened at all. You know, it <laughs> couldn't go around. Because, of course, you have to ski, if you're thinking with a, with a fixed binding, as I was, in a very different style to what we ski today. To make this, and the ski did 
hundred, you, you had to do a hundred percent of the work. The ski didn't do anything much unless you told it to. Whereas yeah. now, you know, skis just ski on their own to a degree. Anyway, we did, when we did that, we did the filming. And at the end of the day, in three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, we were right up the top on the glacier, obviously. And that was the only station open. But Graham decided he would ski down the closed piece, closed, closed, closed glacier, down to the mid station where the, the lift did actually stop so he could get on there. And he and the cameraman, who was a really good skier, but he was on today's skis, uh, off they went down, down the glacier. And we just watched out of the window as we came down the lift. And he just skied beautifully all the way down. I mean, remarkable. That's the true mark of a good skier. I wish I could ski like that. Well, when you've been to five Winter Olympics, maybe that gives you the pedigree to be able to uh, to do that sort of thing. And in terms of um, you know publications, you've you know you've produced a number of books over your career. But uh, I was interested that uh, there was a sort of um, a diversification into a different uh, area with uh, a book which I think the title is called "A uh, Different Country, Same State." where you followed James Blunt, the singer, on his uh, global tour, I think. And I wondered whether, because I know that he's very keen on Verbier and maybe he, he might live in Verbier, he certainly has a residence there. Is that how you came into contact with James Blunt? How did that work out? Yeah, this was my kind of midlife crisis, I guess, uh, to go <laughs> off and write this book about James. I'd actually known him for uh, since he was a young teenager because his mum, used to work for us and we, we had a, a photo library at the time and she used to run the photo library for us so we became great family friends so I got to know James and as he said you know I, I knew saw him go through university and then into the army and we spent a Christmas together once I, I've, I've sung the 12 days of Christmas with him my one friend of fame as a singer I can tell you <laughs> and uh, we, we, we so we we as I say, a great family friends. And then uh, I put the idea to him that when he became famous, perhaps it would be a good idea to have me along to be a fly on the wall while he was on tour. And he thought the idea was absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> a guy who's the age of, of, of his father uh, doing this, and indeed, you know, twice the age at least of all the band, and it, it wouldn't work at all. But I convinced him that we should sort of have a little go at this. And I used to turn up in different places for the first sort of few weeks. And then we thought, well, hang on, this is such a ridiculous idea, but maybe it's a really good one. So, <laughs> so I, it took me a little while to be um, promoted to the level at which I could travel on the tour bus with them. But gradually they realized that actually I've had a, a long and varied life and I've, you know, I've seen it all and got the T-shirt. And I was non-judgmental on anything that they might do, or, or indeed I might do. <laughs> and uh, and we had a we had a tremendous time. I think I, I can't remember how many uh, uh, gigs I went to, but in, in many hundreds. And we went all over the I went all over the world with them. And because of my job, I could sort of just turn up somewhere. So we were in they were in Australia, and they didn't feel sort of strange that I you know they were having a drink in a bar one evening, and I just walked in. I mean, James knew I was coming, but he never told anyone. And uh, they'd say, oh, hello, Peter, you know, what are you doing here? And we just carried on for, a, I'd stay there for a week or two and travel with them and uh, get a bit more detail of what was going on and then go away again. So I, on and off for about four years, I, I went on tour with them. Great. And then the book was published uh, in, in 2009 or something yeah, like that? 2009, yeah. And that, and that just is the backstage story of his tour, is it? 
Yeah, it's it's the it's the backstage tour. It's, it's the book. You're not you know what goes on tour should stay on tour. This didn't. <laughs> um, I have to say that James had the uh, uh, you know part of the deal was that he could change anything he wanted or you know he had overall rights for it. And uh, every time I took out something because I thought it was a bit dodgy, he said, "No, oh, no, we want more detail on that." You know, so it was uh, it, it it was quite tricky when we got to the level of. Um, uh, the, the, you know, when you write a book, it then has to be checked by libel lawyers. And they, the libel lawyer was a slightly prim lady, and she came back with uh, 276 cases of potential libel in the book. <laughs> you know, the publishers threw their hands in the spell. I said, no, no, you just go through them one by one. And, uh, and I did. And uh, she kept coming back to me saying, well, if you're saying this, it means that, you know, so-and-so was under the influence of drugs and, uh, and that you were drunk. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, that's right. And it, well, when the book is published, he's going to deny that and we're going to be sued for millions. No, 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 I'll get an affidavit from him now saying that's what happened. <laughs> that's so, that's yeah. really interesting to hear. I, I know that uh, um, James, from, I don't know him personally, but from what uh, he's posted and shared on Twitter before, has a pretty good sense of humour and is quite self-effacing. So it doesn't... Um, uh, come across as a surprise to hear that he's happy to be open about all of those things in a book. Yeah, he has a very, very fine sense of humour. And he's a very fine skier too, which is really, you know, brings it on to that. And he, yeah, he's got a house in, in Verbier and uh, he has a lift named after him in Verbier. Um, right. Which, um, I was a bit instrumental in bringing it around because I was talking to the authorities in, in Verbier and they were looking for a new person to... Uh, sponsor. They have godfathers and godmothers for the lift. And uh, I suggested him, and then that, that came about. So we went there and we had this sort of big lift opening ceremony and things. It was all good fun. And he was, he's a good skier. You know, he did downhill in the army ski team and things. So he knows exactly what he's doing. Excellent. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to track down that book uh, as well. Um, so clearly, you've had a, an extremely varied uh, uh, career. And more recently, you've kind of gone off also into another direction. I mean, bringing together all of your experience from travel, but um, with Felice, you've uh, set up and launched the Action Pack podcast. It's called Action Pack Travel. Launched this on March the 13th, Friday, March the 13th, 2020, which <laughs> it was probably one of the worst dates in history for starting <laughs> business. This was the week when skiing collapsed. It stopped, all the lifts started closing. We, we thought it was just temporary, but look, here we are now. And uh, we thought we could, we could see, therefore, that the um, making a living out of skiing was going to be at least temporarily not possible. So we thought, what should we do and what should we do to fill our time? So we started, or ha we'd had the idea for some time, but we actually got on with starting a podcast. And as you know, that's not quite as easy as it sounds, is it? There's a, a lot of work goes into this. That, that is certainly true. It's interesting the date you mentioned there because I know exactly where I was because I was travelling on a train between Arosa and Andermatt at the time when uh, I was looking at my phone and discovered the lifts in Switzerland were going to close uh, the following day. As it was, we were able to go ski touring uh, for a couple of days in Andermatt afterwards, but I know that date. And in relation to podcasting, uh, you know, I think before I started producing podcasts and I listened to them I'd never really considered the amount of work that goes into it particularly if you are your own editor and producer and researcher etc as well well I've listened to, I haven't listened to all of your podcasts but I've listened to quite a lot of them and they're very varied 
you know, you cover all sorts of uh, different uh, subjects. I wondered how you choose your subjects. Well, obviously, skiing to start with is, uh, you know, our main subject in lots of ways. But both of us have done a lot of other travel writing as well. So we know a, a lot of people and a lot of people around the world. And to start with, it was just finding friends to, to, to do it and come on and talk because we had to uh, start with Zoom. And for, for a while, we were able in the autumn to get out and go and meet people and do live broadcasts. But now we're back on Zoom again. But it's been a question each week. We do it every week. We're on episode 46 now, I think. And that's a lot of work trying to find the people. And you know, people say to me, have you got a list of sort of four or five weeks in advance? No, four or five days in advance. <laughs> <laughs> and then sometimes you get a glut and you've got, right at this minute, I've got three in the, in the can, which is wonderful. And you can sort of relax a bit. But most of the time, it's a scrabble to find the people get the people to do it, research them, and, and do the show. But it's good fun. It's a really interesting thing. And we try to be as varied as possible. So we've done everything from polar explorers and safaris and all sorts of things. Well, I can certainly recommend it, Action Pack Travel. Uh, I've listened to a number of them. My favourite was the one set in Bath, which I'm guessing, well, it was recorded on location, wasn't it? And it gave it that extra sense uh, that, I, that I really enjoy, the feeling of being there. Well, it's one of those few that uh, we've actually been able to get out and do. And, and that was great because Bart laid it on for us and we had a, 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 a tour by, by candlelight of, uh, of the bars, of the Roman bars. And it was really good to do. We did Stonehenge as well. That was fun. And Wookiee Hole uh, at, at, at Halloween. That was probably my favourite in lots of ways. We had this guy took us around speaking in a very voice. I don't know. I was like, which lives down here? And he sort of clomped through all these caverns. It was good fun. You mentioned that you know, with the podcast, you get to explore your own interests and you get to meet interesting people. And I think really that's what I've enjoyed about the podcasting that I've been doing as well. And I've really enjoyed being able to, to chat with you today, Peter. I know we meet at different events, but there's not always time to find out about your very interesting career. So I'd like to thank you for your time today and uh, I look forward to listening to more of your podcasts in the future. Thank you very much indeed. Really enjoyed it. Hi there listener, Ian here. I just wanted to let you know that you can now support the Ski Podcast at buymeacoffee.com. Researching, recording, editing and publishing the pod takes up a lot of my time. And don't get me wrong, I really enjoy it. You know, I love talking with people about skiing. But if you do enjoy listening to the podcast and you'd like to support us, then you can literally buy me a coffee, or in my case it would be a cup of tea, but the idea is the same. So just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. Thanks very much.